0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We're continuing in our study of Church 101. It's a topical series that we picked up a few weeks ago, and we're going to continue on with the next section this morning. You have your copy of God's Word. I invite you to turn me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, just put your finger there for a moment. Now, um, we just wrapped up the Olympics here not that long ago. Uh, and I really enjoy the Summer Olympics. Um, and of course, there's so many different athletes we get introduced to in the Summer Olympics. But uh, over the years, there's some that stick with us, names that we recognize uh, as we as we watch them compete. Especially Americans, we we always love to watch our American uh, brothers and sisters there. Over how many of you remember uh, Richard Thompson? Anyone remember Richard Thompson? No. Uh, He's actually not American. He's from um, Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I'm really surprised no one recognizes his name because he ran in one of the most popular, well-known foot races of all time at the Olympic Games in uh, 2012. He ran in the men's 100-meter final. And uh, that's obviously like a a big race. It's the one that crowns the world's fastest man. And uh, if you haven't heard of Richard Thompson... Uh, it's probably because uh, he ran a sluggish 9.98 seconds in that race uh, Back in 2012 and, and, uh, and finished dead last So uh, how many of you have heard of Usain Bolt? Right? Just by a show of hands, right? We all know who Usain Bolt is uh, Why is that? Well, because uh, he won the gold medal in that race And several other Olympic races before that He he held the title of world's fastest man for eight years, and I think he holds the top two or top three fastest times ever run in a hundred meter final or a hundred meter race ever professionally. Uh, It's a pretty impressive resume. You see, in our pride, we're hardwired to highly esteem and remember those who come first. We remember those who are, um, you know, champions; those who are out in front. But we don't often highly esteem or remember those who finish last. In fact, we rarely, if ever, remember those who miss the playoffs. uh, Unless you're a Redskins fan, I guess. (laughs) We don't pay attention to those who operate in the background. In the world's economy, greatness is measured by how prominently your achievements are known, how much press you receive, how many people report to you at work, or how many followers you have. That's what the world's economy values and measures greatness. But as we'll see from God's Word this morning, God's economy is the exact opposite. In God's economy, greatness is not measured by how big or influential you are. It's not measured by upfront time that you command. It's not measured by how many people admire you or look up to you. In God's economy... Spiritual greatness is determined by your service, by your service. And so if you look with me at Mark chapter 10 and verse 42, Jesus called the disciples to himself and he said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus here is laying out for us in this text the very important spiritual principle, and it's this, the greatest of all is the servant of all. The greatest of all is the servant of all. Said another way, spiritual greatness, spiritual maturity is reflected in humble service. Humble service. Matthew 16, 18 has been our anchor text for every one of these topical messages. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it and for the past four Sundays, we've been taking that promise by the Lord and, and putting some flesh and bones to it. There's no spiritual force that can thwart the church's advance. There's no, there's no physical, there's no spiritual force that can thwart the church's advance. The church that Christ builds can and will prevail against every adversary. That's God's promise in his word. And the question we're trying to answer as we go through this, this Church 101 series Every week, the question we're trying to answer is, how does this church become that kind of church? And the New Testament gives us the answers to that question. It's not a secret. He's told us what we're to do and how we are to conduct ourselves so that we can partner with him in this work of building his church. It's going to happen. Uh, We can either get on board with what God's doing and be a part of it, or it will pass us by and someone else will do it. But the reality is that there are certain commitments that we must make, and we've highlighted four thus far. We've talked about how the church which Christ is building must be committed to expository preaching and teaching. It must be committed to a lifestyle of worship. Thirdly, a church that Christ is building must be committed to deliberate shepherding. And last week we saw that the church must be committed to transparent discipleship. And the words of Jesus in our text that we just read in Mark 10 reveal the fifth commitment we must have if we're going to partner with Christ in this work of building his church, and that is we must be committed to proactive ministry, proactive ministry. We must be a church of servants, of servants. The church that the Lord builds isn't established by everyone coming together and taking for themselves. Instead, it is established by God's people coming together and selflessly giving away their lives as Christ-like servants. That's how the church is built. If we're going to be a church that prevails against every adversary, we must be committed to proactive ministry, serving others in the life of the body. Spiritual greatness, spiritual maturity, usefulness to God is reflected in faithful service. And uh, we want to look particularly, as for our outline this morning, at Mark's gospel and Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32 and all the way to verse 52. Because here we see why and how we are to and why we should be committed to faithful service. we we'll break our outline down into just two simple parts. We must be committed to faithful service first because we become fools when we selfishly strive after our own desires, and secondly, because we are blessed when we selflessly embrace a posture of humility. So that's where we're going as we come to our text. But beginning in verse Uh, chapter 10 of Mark, verse 32 down to verse 40, we see our first point given in that we become fools when we selfishly strive after our own desires. Now, we need to place ourselves in the context of what's happening here. Jesus is in the area of Judea, beyond the Jordan. This is further east. It's inland. It's desert-like. It's it's literally wilderness-like. Israel, you know, Coming in from the water, elevation increases, and then there's a kind of a mountain range that runs down the middle. And then on the backside is just desert. The the moisture never even gets there. It's just dry. And here he is in this area, downhill, so to speak, from Jerusalem. And Jesus is making his final push toward Jerusalem for the final Passover. And he's ultimately going to give his life as the Passover sacrifice the final and complete Passover sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And he has turned his attention toward Jerusalem in this scene. He is uh, plowing ahead. He is uh, coming into the area of Jericho. He is going up to Jerusalem. And uh, there's a long, winding road that would have taken them from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And there is this massive crowd of people that is traveling with Jesus. There is an entourage of disciples and just onlookers. And they were following him because they thought something amazing was going to happen. They thought he was going to make Israel great again. And so he's following them. Uh, They're following Jesus and they're expecting some kind of massive political takeover. Everyone's excited and amazed. There's some fear and in that scene, Jesus turns to his disciples and begins explaining to them what is about to happen as he goes up to Jerusalem. We see that in Mark 10, in verse 32. He says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who, were followed, those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve, meaning his disciples, aside, and began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So Jesus pulls him aside with the disciples and he says, I know everyone here is excited about what's going to happen. Let me tell you exactly how it's going to go down. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and get killed. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be mocked and spit on and scourged and put to death. This is not the first time he said this. He said it back in Mark 9, verse 12. He he said there that uh, Elijah does not come and restore all things, and yet how is it written that the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with Contempt, Or in verse 31, he says, he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So this isn't the first time that he's shared this uh, outcome with them. But uh, they did not have a category in their brain for that. It didn't register. There is a serious cognitive dissonance happening there. And so, though he said it plainly, they, they couldn't figure out what he was talking about. Have you ever this has happened to me a few times where you run in to a, a a place, a store or something, and you don't expect to see somebody there that um, you know, uh, maybe because it's I don't know far removed from where you usually are or whatever, a different place. when you don't expect to see them, you um, can literally come face to face with them and not recognize them because your brain isn't looking for that. I remember happening, that happened to me one time in the grocery store. My great aunt was there and she was standing right in front of me and I did not recognize her until, I don't know, like five minutes into the... We were waiting in line and I, I was like, huh? oh, you know, I didn't expect to see her at the store. At the time. And, and even though I was staring right at her face, it didn't make sense. That's what's going on with the disciples here. They're, they don't understand what Jesus is talking about. And so he's speaking plainly, and yet they do not understand. Luke 8 in the parallel account says that the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Just whew, nothing. For them, In their immaturity and in their selfishness, they could only see Jesus through one lens as the political leader and the spiritual leader who would overthrow the Romans and restore Israel's prosperity. That's all they could see him doing. They could not imagine that Jesus would be executed like a common Roman criminal, that he would rise from the grave and ascend to heavenly glory between a first and second coming. That did not compute for them. What would that accomplish? How would that bring about salvation? They just couldn't comprehend it. What they failed to understand in their pride and in their immaturity is that the greatest of all is the servant of all. They failed to understand that if they were to pursue spiritual greatness, they must lay aside the foolishness of their own selfish desires. They failed to understand that spiritual transformation would not come through political or cultural power, but the fact that they couldn't understand Jesus' clear explanation of what was about to happen. That's not even the most embarrassing thing in the whole story for them. As they were going up to Jerusalem, James and John expose their foolishness in a demonstration of pride that is, quite frankly, staggering. And you're almost, as you read the text, embarrassed for them. Look at Mark 10, verse 35. And then James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said, grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those who whom it has been prepared. See, James and John completely blow past what Jesus just said about his impending death and resurrection. And they're so fixated on their place of prominence in Jesus' earthly kingdom that they don't even respond to what he has previously said. And in this small little vignette that's captured by Mark, and also in Matthew and also in Luke the foolishness of pursuing our own selfish desires is epitomized it's laid out for us we see three things that are true when we pursue our selfish desires first and these come right out of the out of the text first when we selfishly strive after our own desires it exposes or demonstrates our immaturity it exposes or illustrates our immaturity James and John here in the text approach, and then Matthew 20 tells, adds the detail that their mom was involved, approach Jesus and they ask him this question. Teacher, you see this in verse 35, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So this is essentially like a little kid coming up to their parents and saying, I'm going to ask you a question And I want you to promise me that no matter what the question is, the answer will be yes. (laughs) That's essentially what they're asking for here. This is James and John asking for a spiritual blank check that they can fill in. Does that demonstrate maturity, yes or no? No. Are James and John acting like adults, or are they acting like children in this interaction here? Like children. They're acting like children. It highlights an, inspir- uh, an important spiritual reality. Craving and demanding our own way always makes us act like children. If I asked uh, 20 first graders to line up at the back door, and I said, go, what would happen? They would all run, to the fr- and they would line up, and what would happen at the front of that line? A whole bunch of the ones at the front would be elbowing and pushing and trying to get in front of each other. Um, Why? Because pursuing our selfish desires always wants us to be up front. That's an immature response, right? Kids, first graders fighting to be first in line, we recognize that as a, a foolish thing, an immature thing to be jockeying for position at the front of a line. And we scoff at that and we say, well, kids are so foolish or kids are so immature. And then we as adults turn around and do the exact same thing in a different context when we try and jockey for the best seat at the table in God's kingdom. And yet the scriptures demand that we press on toward maturity, that we lay immaturity aside over and over again. The scriptures call us to grow up to grow up into Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 13, reminds us that we are equipping, as leaders, equipping the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 15, we are to grow up in all aspects, into him who is the head. First Peter chapter 2, in verse 2, he says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We are called to grow up spiritually. But I want you to notice, as the disciples come, as James and John come, and they say, Lord, we want you to give us the place of prominence in the kingdom. Notice Jesus' response in verse chapter 10. He says, what do you want me to do for you? I think it's, it's insightful to note that Jesus is tender. Jesus is gracious. Jesus is patient. That's how he deals with us in our immaturity. So it exposes our immaturity. Secondly, striving after our own desires leads us to make demands from God. Look at verse 37. They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And that They're making a demand. Lord, make it so. This is what we want. The disciples wanted to be in a position of prominence and they weren't at all ashamed of asking Jesus to get what they wanted. They were ordering God around saying, grant that we may do this. Grant that we may sit here. Grant that we may have this. They were treating God like a like a magic genie. You rub the lamp, you get three wishes. What do you want? We want to sit at the right hand and you're left hand in your kingdom, in your glory. It's foolishness to think that God is at all inclined to submit himself to our selfish desires, our selfish demands. We see this in the church when we put conditions upon our following Christ, our followership. We put conditions on that sometimes. If you do X, Lord, I'll follow you, I'll obey you. If if you... If so-and-so comes back groveling, then I'll forgive them. Or if this church has this ministry or that ministry, then I'll commit to it. If this person is more like me, and then I'll make every effort to get to know and love them, etc. We put conditions on our obedience. We put conditions on our followership. We make demands of God and strive after our own selfish desires. We want to say that we call the shots. We're in the driver's seat. Seeking our desires by demanding from God and slapping conditions on our following is the opposite of faithful service. It's the opposite of proactive ministry. Thirdly, selfishly striving after our own desires is characterized by depending on our own resources, by depending on, on our own resources. Look at verse 38. And Jesus said to them, do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said, oh, we are able. We are able. Jesus gently corrects them here in verse 39 and 40. He's telling them they don't understand what they're asking. They have no idea. He says, you, you will drink that cup. You don't understand what you're asking. He was about to endure the most brutal, humiliating death at the hands of godless men. But more than that, he was about to endure the full wrath of God for the sins of his people. And that was something that they could not even comprehend. But look at their response to his question. Can you do this? Can you handle what I'm about to handle? Oh, yes, we're able. Yeah, we got that. No problem. It's, uh, it's like someone who has no exercise, does no exercise, has no experience, and decides that they're going to do a 125-mile hike in five day, over five days backpacking through the wilderness. Right? You, you sure you can handle that? Oh, yeah, 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 I, I can do that. No problem. The disciples foolishly presumed that they had the capacity within themselves and the resources within themselves to grasp, hold of, and endure what Jesus himself was about to endure. This is foolishness, total foolishness. They underestimated their spiritual frailty, and they were blinded by selfish desire. And we experience that as well. When we presume to have the resources within ourselves to live the Christian life On our terms. On our terms. You believe you can flirt with temptation and sin and not be caught in its grasp. You believe that you can grow up in maturity in isolation from fellowship and accountability in the local church. You believe the Word of God isn't sufficient. And so you quarrel against sound wisdom. It's foolish to think that you and I can pursue our own desires. And enjoy the blessing and the commendation of God. In God's economy, the greatest of all is the servant of all, not the Lord of all. At this point, Jesus steps in to navigate this situation because it's getting ugly. Verse 41, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Not because they were so upset about their selfishness but because they were upset that they got there first and Jesus had to pull them aside much like when a parent has to pull the car over <laughs> on a trip alright need to, this is not working the, the, the kids are in the back seat bickering and instead of breaking out the whooping stick he explains to them this important spiritual principle that the greatest of all Is the servant of all. Look at verse 45. He said, Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the reality, the upside down, the irony, if you will, of the situation that to be great in God's economy is to be lowly unless we be tempted to think that our circumstances or our lot in life exempts us from faithful service and humility, we need to remember that even Jesus did not expect to be served. He did not expect to be served. The God of the universe made himself the slave of everyone. How much less do we deserve to be served than Jesus? So, In this scene, we see the foolishness of striving after our own desires. It all does is expose our immaturity, it leads us to demand from God, and it causes us to depend on our own resources. None of those things are good. (laughs) We shouldn't want that. But when you contrast verses 32 to 45 with what follows it in verses 46 to 52 we see the opposite. In the previous section, we realized that striving after our own desires ends up being foolish. But here in verses 46 to 52, our second, in the second scene, we see the blessedness of embracing a posture of humility. Unlike the last situation that exposed the folly of striving after selfish desires, in this scene, this becomes a case study of the blessedness of, of lowliness humility. As they're going along, they pass through the region of Jericho and they encounter this blind beggar. His name is Bartimaeus. Uh, pre, the parallel accounts refer, uh, point out that there were actually two men there, but Mark here only zeros in on one. Uh, these, this man was blind. He was, And it wasn't uncommon in that day for those who had these kind of Uh, systemic physical defects to be relegated to putting outside the camp so to speak, outside of the city's center and that's what these men are doing, they're begging in the streets and Jesus is traveling with this mass remember there's this mass of people that are moving along along, uh, 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 up the road and so this man would have been tipped off that Jesus was coming just by all the noise, all the hubbub of who was moving along and um this man this blind beggar has much to teach us about true humility this blind beggar teaches us first that true humility recognizes that jesus is god that jesus is god notice what he says in verse 46 and 47. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He had heard of Jesus, presumably, and his ministry, the miracles that he had done, Maybe they had heard his message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Whatever he knew of Jesus was enough to convince Jesus that he was the Messiah. That's why he calls him the son of David. And Luke and Matthew were told that he addressed Jesus as Lord in another time in this interaction. Affirming that he believed Jesus was God. This man understood that Jesus was God, that he was not God as the beggar. True humility recognizes Jesus as Lord and submits to him as such. If you want to embrace a posture of humility, you must continually come back to the reality that Jesus is Lord and you and I were not. We're not. We are nothing more than unworthy slaves. This beggar teaches us, secondly, that true humility lets nothing become between you and your pursuit of Christ. True humility lets nothing come between you and your pursuit of Christ. Notice that when Bartimaeus started crying out to God, the crowd tried to shush him. Verse 48, Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. This man was not going to be denied the opportunity to get Jesus' attention. There was an earnestness about him. There was a persistence that we need to notice here that is lacking so often in our Christian character. He wanted access to God. He had faith in God. He was not going to let anything stand in his way. If you look back at Matthew 20, excuse me, chapter 15, uh, the Jesus interaction with the Syrophoenician woman, who is not a Jew directly, and uh, in verses 21 to 28, this Canaanite woman came and began playing pleading with Jesus, have mercy on me, and Her son, her daughter, excuse me, was cruelly demon possessed, and he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came imploring him, saying, "Get rid of this woman; send her away, because she keeps shouting at us." And he said to her, "I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And she came and began to bow down before him and saying, "Lord, help me." And he said, "It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs." But she said, "Yes, Lord, even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table." And Jesus said to her, "Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. See, Jesus commended her great faith and he drew that faith that he knew was there out of her. He drew that faith out of her with his responses, initial responses. He wanted to show her and the rest of the group how persistent, earnest faith Refuses to back down in the pursuit of Christ. This is a humble servant's mindset. It's one of godly persistence in the pursuit of Christ. And the value of something that we have in this world, just on a simple level, the value of something is measured by what you're willing to give up to acquire it. Do you value Christ? What are you willing to give up in order to see Christ reflected in you? What are you giving up to see Christ reflected in others? That will tell you the value we place on Christ. Third, this blind beggar teaches us that true humility praise, in simple childlike faith. True humility, praise, and simple, childlike faith. If you go back to Mark chapter 10, you look at verse 50, he says, throwing aside his cloak, this blind beggar jumped up and came to Jesus and answered him and said, What? and Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. Notice, As this man came to Jesus, Jesus gives the exact same response that he gave to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? See, Jesus, the servant, stoops even lower than the blind beggar. Such humility. This man came begging and believing that Jesus could heal him, and that Jesus, he said, was the Savior, and he came with earnestness and expectation and urgency. It's a lesson for us. It's a lesson for us, because as he came with that urgency and expectation, he received a blessing. And Jesus said to him in verse 52, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he gained his sight and began following him along the road. This is such a stark contrast to what happened with the disciples in the previous section. James and John come demanding. James and John come presuming. And Jesus gives them a rebuke, gentle one, but a rebuke nonetheless. This man comes earnest. This man comes humble. This man comes pleading, taking his request straight to the man, to God. And he receives what he asks and a blessing. His faith made him well. His sight was restored and he began to follow Jesus along the road like all the rest. Totally different scenes in 32 to 45, 46 to 52. One is arrogance, pride, selfishness. The other is humility, selflessness, trust. You say, okay, so how does this tie back to our commitment to proactive ministry. Where are we going with this? Well, I will tell you, if you look with me at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Here, Paul tells us that the enemy of proactive ministry, serving others, is selfishness and conceit, pride. When selfishness reigns in our hearts, our desire and our capacity to serve others is choked off. It's choked off. Verse, the last part of verse 3. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. So, so selfishness is the opposite of humility. Conceit is the opposite of humility. The remedy is to regard others as more important. With humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourselves. If you're going to proactively serve other people consistently in the church, you have to be humble. You have to be humble. How do we do that? We look to Christ. We look to Christ as our example. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is our example of humility. He was God in human flesh, and yet he humbled himself to serve wretched sinners like you and like me, to bear our sins on his Shoulders, as it were, on the cross. He set aside the glory of heaven in all of his uh, adoration of praise that he so rightly deserves, and he took our shame upon himself so that we could share in his life. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews says, taking the shame so that we could be made partakers of life eternal. If the God of the universe can humble himself and serve us, can you be faithful to serve others? And we, as leaders, can hoot and holler and assign things for people to do, but if you don't embrace, and I don't embrace a spirit of humility like Christ, you will never be faithful to serve God's people. But what we can do What we can do, and what we're even attempting to do this morning in this message, is to expose for you from the Scriptures that when you pursue selfish desires, the reward that you receive is trivial and transitory. It's trivial and it's transitory. But when you pursue humility, and in so doing will serve the saints, the rewards are exemplary and they are eternal. The rewards of humble service, are exemplary, and they are eternal. Hebrews 6.10, For God is not so unjust so as to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. He doesn't forget. He doesn't lose sight of what we do for others. It is noted he's not unjust so as not to reward us for that effort. Matthew 25, Matthew 25 and verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What a reward. What a reward. God is preparing a righteous reward for those who serve the saints. He goes on in verse 35, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, When did we see you, Lord, hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king will say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Inasmuch as you serve God's people, you serve Christ. Don't forfeit the reward. Often sign emails. Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve him with gladness. That's the attitude that we have to have. Serve the Lord with gladness. Don't wait around to be assigned something to do. Look around you, asking the Lord to open your eyes to needs and then move to meet them. Ministry isn't about a position. Ministry is about a posture. Humility. Humility is the posture that true service occupies. The prevailing church is committed, must be committed to proactive ministry. We have to be a church of servants, and we are. I see so many examples of that. The church that the Lord is building is not established as everyone comes together to take. You will be filled up, but not by seeking to be filled up. You will be filled up as you give your life away for others and they do the same for you. We come together to serve one another in the church And we fulfill God's promise from Mark chapter 10 that the greatest of all is the servant of all. This is the attitude that we must have. This is the commitment that we must pursue at all cost. Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this is the... Profound upside-downness, if you will, of your word. That greatness is achieved through lowliness. That the greatest is the one who is the most humble, the most low. And it's not that we fool ourselves or trick ourselves into believing something that's not true. True humility isn't someone six foot tall telling themselves that they're only three feet tall. But it's someone six foot tall, acknowledging that the one they're standing next to is infinitely taller. And that is what you are, Lord. No one could achieve or measure up to your holiness, your standards, your glory. And yet you call us to humble ourselves and to follow in your footsteps. I pray that you would move on hearts in our church to. First, draw people into a life of service. Humble them. Bring them low so that they can be useful to you. And those who are walking in humility, Lord, and I see so many examples of that in our life in the church here. Those who are walking in lowliness, Lord, help them to persevere. Help them to press on, even when it seems like their labors are not being acknowledged or seen or they're not accomplishing what it is they hope to accomplish knowing that you're taking notice. Their reward in heaven is great. And in so much as how they treat others, they treat, they demonstrate how they are treating you. We pray that you'd help us to take these things to heart, Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church. Visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.